the uh, last thing on my agenda, I should turn this on. The last thing on my agenda for today was to guide you in a loving kindness meditation. But that is a, a kind of a closing kind of thing. <laughs> so before we do that, I just in, invite you, in, any questions you have, any comments you'd like to make, uh, to, to do with any of the things that we've talked about, not just what we did most recently. So. Let's have a little final question and answer period and then we'll do the loving-kindness meditation, okay? So, anybody got anything on their mind? Yes? Um, I wanted to ask you about different kinds of meditation. Um, I read about where you can, where you can use mantras or mm -hmm. a mandala, I think this was called. Mandalas. Or yeah. the... Little, I don't know what it's called, I'm sorry. Mala. Malas, Malas, yes. Malas, yeah. Um, so, I don't know, I would like to hear maybe a little bit more about those mm -hmm. type of meditations. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there really are a whole variety of practices. Um, not all of them are particularly geared towards. Uh, a kind of uh, insight and understanding as, as the practices that we've been doing this weekend. Uh, although there's a lot of complementarity between these practices. Mantras, a lot of things called mantra too. It's not like there is a practice called mantra practice. There's a lot of practices that are called mantra. But uh, essentially what they have in common is they're, they're using some series of syllables that's either chanted or, uh, or in, uh, repeated internally, although in, in some cases they involve visualizations as well. Now, mantras can be used as a meditation object, similar to the way that we use the sensations of the breath. Uh, another really common way to use mantras is to uh, uh, produce a particular mental state, which a group of people chanting a mantra together, it's a very powerful experience. Actually, it's a very powerful bonding experience, and uh, done properly, it can help to move a person uh, out of the narrow confines of the selfhood that they usually feel there yet. Everybody experiences that to some degree or another. Some of you have probably chanted mantras in groups, but singing singing songs in groups. Uh, I mean, this happens in a lot of the Christian churches. Everybody knows the words and they all sing together and you have this transporting experience where you kind of lose yourself and become part of this larger identity. Anyway, that's one of the things that mantras can do is to produce altered states of consciousness. And these different altered states of consciousness can be used quite constructively. The mala, the beads, 
that's basically you're chanting a mantra and using the the beads to uh, sort of count how many mantras you've chanted. Uh, uh, It's more than that. It also adds a tactile component to it. It Serves some of the functions of you know worry rocks, (laughs) worry beads, and things like that. So it it adds a, a a body tactile component to the chanting of the mantra itself. And it's a very interesting thing about doing that. You can find it very grounding, and it can be used as a a tool for helping you to remember to be mindful in your daily life when you're doing other things. It it can make you more focused. There have been, there was a time, I don't do it anymore, there was a time that if I was doing a, a talk to people, I would I would do a, a mala at the same time. It kind of divided my consciousness, but I had the really wonderful effect of the part of my consciousness that was on the talk I was giving stayed really, really focused because I didn't have a lot of leftover room in consciousness for stray thoughts and distractions. <laughs> These things can be used in a lot of different ways. So what I would say about them is that uh, best that you find a particular system of practice that appeals to you and that you have some kind of good evidence produces the sorts of results that you want. Okay? So uh, I I think what you should say about, what you should think about a teacher is that teacher has some qualities that I would like to have. And what you should say about the followers of a particular method is they're manifesting the kind of changes and attitudes and experiences and so forth that I would like to have. And if you see that, then you will go ahead and follow that practice and make use of it. Um, In terms of combining different practices, as you acquire a certain degree of uh, skill and facility with one practice, then you might experiment with using others in combination with it. But I think it's what you always want to keep in mind. It's a journey and there's different uh, different trails lead to different places and they even the ones that lead to the same place go by different routes. Right? So You need to you need to keep that in mind, and you need to make your choices based on whether they whether they go to the place that you want to go, and whether you've got some kind of evidence to believe that that they'll really get you there. After after you've followed a particular path for a while, you can become more adventuresome, and maybe see if you can chart your own route. All of the innovations and improvements and discoveries that have ever been made have been made by people who weren't dogmatically and rigidly inclined to uh, do exactly what somebody else has done before. So I, I don't discourage you from being an experimentalist and an innovator at all, and it might serve you very well. Although, I'll just remind you that 
in all explorations, uh, there's a lot of explorers who don't get where they intended to get as compared to the ones that do. So, yeah. Um, would you say something about magical thinking and the effect that it has on practice? What is this exactly? What is magical thinking? Well, well, and and does it have an effect on your? Well, can you, can you you're using the word, so you want to know what magical thinking is. What do you mean by magical thinking? I can I don't want to say. You don't want to say. <laughs> I have I have two two strong opinions about magical thinking. Okay. And that's why I'm trying to free them up a little bit. Free, oh, okay. Or concrete them in really well. Okay. Well, essentially, we could we could say magic. Something appears to be magic when we don't know how it produces the result that it does, right? And uh, of course, I've got a cell phone, a cell phone in front of me. Can you imagine how that would be explained? Uh, a hundred years ago? That would seem like magic, wouldn't it? As a matter of fact, almost all the things that we take for granted today, you know, you go back a little ways in time and they would seem like just the purest sort of magic. Not to us, though. We know that there's people that know exactly how these things work. Even if you don't know how they work, you know that there's other people that do. And you know that behind that, there isn't any magic. It's just plain old cause and effect. You do this, it produces that result. And you do enough of the right thises, you get the desired result. And you can, uh, all this wonderful technology that we enjoy is a result of that. And we know it's not magic, even if we don't know how it works. But somebody else would think, it because they, and what do we mean they would think it's magic? They would think uh, it's supernatural, okay? It, they, would, they would assume that it must involve some power that goes beyond cause and effect. And so, if by magical thinking you think that somebody can violate the kind of causality that you have observed in uh, in the world in the course of your life, then that's that's magical thinking. There has to, you know, you see somebody walk on water. If you if you think that they have a supernatural power, that's magical thinking. If you're not a magical thinker, you say, that's cool, I wonder where the rocks are. Or, at the very least, I wonder how he did it. And uh, a magical thinker tends to jump to the conclusion very quickly that something involves some supernatural powers and something that goes beyond ordinary causality. A non-magical thinker says, that's amazing. I'd like to know how that happened, but I don't have any doubt there is an explanation, and once I had that explanation, I could follow it through, and it's no more magical than anything else I've ever seen. Now, 
well, you bring up magical thinking in the context of meditation and dharma. And There's one particular one that really pushes my button. Channeling. What's that? Channeling a spirit. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that brings me right back to being raised Catholic and, um, and having my salvation outside of myself. Yes, well, what's your relationship to channeling spirit? Is it like, you know, uh, Wait, 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 just one second. I just go off. I mean, I just go off into okay. where did this guy's spirit come from? You know, um, that's a good question. Does he have an existence all of his own? How did he get here? Uh, the questions just go. This is insane. Those are all really good questions, and they're very proper and appropriate questions. What's not appropriate is to jump to the conclusion that this this is nonsense. That this isn't happening. Now, I would simply, if somebody came in the room and they started producing information and you couldn't figure out where they got the information, and they said, I'm channeling a spirit, they're, they're providing an explanation. And you would say, okay, that, that explanation doesn't tell me anything, and then you'd have all of your other questions, right? The mistake would be to totally deny and disregard the phenomena that you had seen. The real question is, the person was able to produce information and you don't know how they got that information. And that's what you want to know the answer to. And if they provide you an explanation that doesn't agree with your experience, that doesn't, that doesn't deny what you saw. When a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, you want to understand how that happened. But you don't want to say, that never happened. Because it did happen. And the magician might say to you, well, I have magical powers, and no rabbit existed, and I brought this rabbit into existence in this moment, just so I could pull him out of a hat and show it to you. <laughs> and you would say, sure. Right. Where you have to be careful is is uh, where where your denial sets in, you know. And I'd be totally my, agree with you. My personal denial. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so I totally agree with you if you uh, denied the magician's explanation. Yes, but you've got to be careful that you don't end up denying it ever happened. And I think the problem, one of the problems with magical thinkers, is that they don't, they don't, they don't ask that questions. They they're they're too quick to uh, they're too quick to believe the magician. And it doesn't. The trouble with that is when they walk away, it doesn't leave them with anything except a residual sense of amazement. They're, amazement. They're absolutely no wiser than they were before. So the antithesis of magical thinking is to accept one of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha. Absolutely everything is the result of causes and conditions. 
absolutely anything is a cause of something else. Uh, everything is causally interconnected and there are no exceptions. So as soon as somebody presents something as violating the laws of causality or standing outside of them in any way, then I'd say you're totally justified in, in denying that. Thank you. Yeah. This is a basic, basic question. Um, and I'm not sure if I wrote it down right uh, from yesterday, but I think that you said if you're having a lot of thoughts, let your attention go to something that holds it. Did you say that? Um, or something similar to that? I, I, I do recall saying if you're having a lot of thoughts, that you can use bodily sensation, and, and if it's interfering with staying with the breath, then you can expand where you allow attention to go. And when you, when you say having a lot of thoughts, are you talking specifically about the forgetting and then the mind wandering, or just thoughts that you're not necessarily attached to? Well, uh, I'm talking about a situation where you're having so many thoughts that it's it, it's interfering with the level of practice that that you think you should be capable of at the moment. And I have a term for that, uh, monkey mind. And everyone experiences monkey mind every now and then. Usually when there's, they're experiencing a lot of stress, disturbance, things like that. Monkey mind is where you sit here and you say, I'm going to focus my attention on the breath. and your attention is going all over the place. Every now and then it lands back on the breath. you know, But it doesn't stay anywhere for any length of time. Ordinary distractions, they have some appeal and they draw the attention and they hold the attention for a little while. you know, And, and it's, it stays there. Monkey mind isn't about the distractions. It's about the mind. The mind is in such an agitated state that it doesn't stay on anything for any length of time, and so if you're and, and so that would affect subjectively the experience that I just can't keep my attention anywhere. Have all kinds of my my mind's just flooded with thoughts of all kinds of things, uh, and if you if you're overlo overloaded with thoughts, use sensations to counteract that, and so body sensations, any kind of body sensation, every kind of body sensation. And sounds. So um, remember, there's these these two major categories: mental objects and and sensations. And so, if you're being overwhelmed by mental objects, uh, use use sensations to counter that to try to bring some stability and calm your mind down a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just wondering. I know you do other retreats, and I think they're coming up. I found this to be completely different from anything I've ever seen you do because there's so much meditating and reading. The other retreats that you do like this, you do this now? Um, 10 day retreats or the 10 day? If we do a 10 day retreat, what, what is it? Yes. By the way, for anybody that's interested, we're doing a retreat at El Rancho Robles right after Christmas, the 27th. Is that January 3rd. 27th to January 3rd. 
these are meditation retreats. In the, in the terminology of some people, they would be described as intensive meditation retreats. I say, ha, you don't know what intensive is. <laughs> but essentially, they consist of a full day of meditation in a group where you're alternating sitting meditation with walking meditation. Typically, uh, doing a couple of sits before breakfast and maybe another three sits between breakfast and lunch and another three sits in the afternoon between lunch and supper. And then in the evening, uh, the plan is that we'll have a Dharma talk and then we'll do a sit. Now, unfortunately in my retreats, the Dharma talk often displaced the last sit of the day. But that's what, that's what it looks like. So if you want to get some real serious meditation experience in, it's a very beautiful place. You, uh, you essentially, except for the time that um, we're doing the Dharma talk in the evening, I think it will be in the evening, although I experimented a little bit with putting it in the afternoon when people are drowsy. Uh, anyway, except for the time when we're doing the Dharma talk, you'll be pretty much continuously meditating, if not sitting, walking meditation. If not doing walking meditation, doing eating meditation and toothbrush, toothbrushing meditation and so forth. Oh, are they leaded, guided? Uh, not, norm, not, not usually, although quite often I will do uh, a few guided meditations in the course of a longer retreat. So it's more like St. James' Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you go. The other thing that we do is meditation interviews. So in the course of the retreat, uh, you'll come and talk to me and, and I'll see if there's any advice I can give you how to improve your practice. You're welcome. Well, yes. And there is, there is still room in that retreat, right? Actually, it's a pretty big place. I think we can... So contact Cynthia. You place a lot of emphasis on, um, as the attention is narrowing with the breath meditation, um, placing the attention at the at the tip of the nose. Um, for somebody like me that has frequent sinus problems, um, I often use the rising and the falling of the abdomen, and I just wanted to kind of get it straight from. From, from you about how critically important is it that the attention eventually be at the nostril tips rather than on some other area? It's absolutely not critically important at all. Um, I know it's a more refined area, yeah. and that's why you... Yeah, there's it. certain advantages. It's, it's, uh, it's more refined, and there's certain things that you can... There's certain ways of using the breath meditation that uh, it's easier to do there. But it's not... Uh, it, it's not even essential that you follow the breath. You could use a mantra. You could do you could do all the same things I teach using a mantra as your meditation object. Uh, although there's some of the practices that don't lend themselves to, to that. So by all means, uh, and, and there are there are uh, some of my students who preferentially use the rise and fall of the abdomen for all kinds of different reasons. And there's even a, a couple of people that. Uh, they, they follow the breath at the chest because for their own reasons they find that works best. Thank you. So, yeah. Um, 
it seems like when I first started using breath, there was a tendency to try to change it, you know, kind of mess up with it. <laughs> yeah. And I would start to yawn and other stuff associated. But now, I mean, it seems like in the sense it's better, in the sense of not thinking so much in that way, and trying to change it, but just accepting it. Yes. And, and when you start focusing your attention on the breath, you might notice that doing that changes your breath. Because, I mean, it works without thinking that, obviously. That's right. You know, you, you breathe all day long, you breathe all night long when you're asleep, and it, you know, and it just happens completely naturally by itself. And that's the place that you want to get to, is where you are the completely passive observer, and uh, you don't want to intentionally alter the breath. There may sometimes be a, a temptation to do that. Um, and to do it very occasionally for a specific reason, there's actually nothing wrong with that. But essentially, you want to be the passive observer as you breathe naturally. But the simple act of focusing your attention on your breath will alter your breathing pattern, at least initially. And some of it's unconscious things, like I say to you, try to notice the beginning and the end of the in-breath and the out-breath. There's an unconscious part of your mind that will alter your breathing to make that beginning of the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath a little sharper and clearer and easier to identify. And if you observe that happening, you just observe that. What's important is that you aren't forming this conscious intention that I'm going to change my breath. If you observe that that's happening, and it's not coming through conscious intention, it's fine. Let it happen. It will go away by itself. Even like counting and things like that, you obviously you can change it somehow, and you tend to alter it. So. Yeah. yeah. And it, what I say is, if you notice that your breath is, is altering, uh, it is, it is altered, don't take credit for it unless you're responsible for it. And if you are responsible for it, quit. But if you're not responsible for it, don't take credit for it. Just let it happen. It's, yeah, you, you, there's so much more to you than your conscious mind and your conscious intentions. And if those other parts of you are fiddling with the breath, let them fiddle. It's, it's very common when people first start meditating on the breath. It, it is very common to be concerned that I'm doing this somehow and how can I stop? But, you know, the, the I that they're talking about isn't who's doing it. And so the I that they're talking about shouldn't try to stop it. Yeah. When I meditate, it seems like the breath can get really slow and it just seems like it just happens. I don't know if happens to a lot of people or not. It does. It happens to everybody. It gets slow, it gets very shallow. Which is one of the reasons that uh, the breath at the nose, uh, you, the nerve endings are more sensitive there, and when the breath becomes really shallow, and people who are following the breath at the abdomen will often think they've stopped breathing and, uh, and get worried about that. Am I going to die? I'm not breathing anymore. It does. It becomes very slow, very shallow. It changes. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, in the course of this weekend, I talked about 
in addition to noticing the beginning and the end and the pause and so forth, you can start observing all the different sensations that occur during the in-breath and during the out-breath. There's more than that. In order to engage your mind with walking, watching the breath, uh, you can observe things like, is this breath longer than the last one, shorter than the last one? Is the in-breath longer or shorter than the out-breath? And then you can watch how they change. You know, when you sit down to meditate, you might initially find that the in-breath is pretty rapid and the out-breath is kind of long and slow. And then as you're sitting there for a while, it, it reverses and you have a long, slow in-breath. And the out-breath is just like a simple relaxation of your rib cage, and the air goes out. It changes. And one of the things, one way to practice uh, being mindful and one way to keep your attention on the breath is to to challenge yourself to be aware of these changes. Most of the time, the pause between the in and the out breath is short compared to the pause between the out and the in breath. But when you become very focused and very concentrated, that switches. And the, the out breath begins to just follow really quickly after the end of the in breath, or, or no, the other way around. It tends to be a long pause uh, uh, before the out breath begins. And it's at the end of the out-breath that the next in-breath comes more quickly. These changes take place. They're all things that you can watch. So your breath changes as you go along. You're not interested in controlling it. But the more, the more accurately that you can observe what's going on, the more powerful you're making your, uh, your, your, your practice, your observation, your attention and awareness. With uh, what are the disadvantages of attempting to deepen the breath? Then, for example, I've um, I've noticed in my years of being a novice meditator that if I just watch the breath, it becomes so shallow that I'm really easily able to just drop into dreamlike and consciousness. Mm -hmm. And if I consciously deepen my breath and watch the breath as a deep breath, I can become more alert. That's because you're doing something. And if I don't, though, it's very easy for me to just go dreamland. Mm -hmm. Well, but there are other ways to keep yourself from going into dreamland. Uh, one of them is when your breath becomes uh, shallow to uh, heighten your awareness, your, your uh, sensory perception, to, to make it more bright, clear, vivid. Um, I wouldn't want to say that you should never do that, but it's going to introduce a certain degree of, of complication in the process that if you could spare yourself would be better. If you're already in the habit of doing that, then you might see if you can't get to a place where you don't need to do that. But if that doesn't work for you, and you can continue to uh, sharpen up the quality of your attention, stabilize your attention, and increase the power of your peripheral awareness, and make that in peripheral awareness introspective, then by all means, go ahead. As a matter of fact, as a general answer to these questions, if you know what the goal of the practice is, if you know what you're trying to accomplish, anything that helps you to accomplish it, go ahead and do it. And if at some point you find that that thing is no longer helping you or is hindering you, 
then that's the time to drop it. So your goal is to have stable attention. Uh, so stable, ultimately, that there's not even this little fine flickering movement that results in subtle distractions. Uh, your other goal is to have very powerful uh, mindfulness, so that peripheral awareness and, and attention are working together and each is supporting the other. And so that's your goal. So anything that helps you to get to this place of stability of attention and powerful mindfulness, that's great. So go ahead. Yeah, I'm just trying to groove the breath uh, for a while because I know that that's been my constant problem is to just lose awareness again and again. So I'm trying to just groove a deeper breath so I can maintain awareness. What's very natural, by the way, is that, uh, and perhaps even watching for this will, will be helpful. Um, it's normal for your breath to become very shallow and you will have a series of, you know, six, eight, ten breaths that are very shallow, and then comes a, a deeper breath, right? And uh, in a longer meditation, those every now and then one of those deeper breaths won't just be a deep, it's like this big sigh, but it's completely spontaneous and it happens by itself. So just knowing that that's going to happen and watching for it can, can be something that you can do. Another question is, I was hoping you might summarize, you know, in the flyer, you've set out certain goals mm -hmm. for what we might take from this time with you. Can you summarize those, please? Yes, to what I, I hope I've given you is the tools to develop stability of attention means to have less and eventually no forgetting and mind wandering. And to uh, and once you've done that, to be able to uh, be less subject to gross distraction. Uh, the other thing with regard to dullness, the drowsiness and fall, uh, falling asleep. We didn't talk about this as much, but I did briefly give you some some directions for dealing that with that. What I really like you to take away from this is an understanding of how to meditate and to have the the methodology to eventually reach very stable attention and uh, overcome dullness, make the power of your consciousness greater so that you have more sustained uh, peripheral awareness and particularly, you see I've tried to guide you to be aware of subtle distractions and subtle distractions that might threaten uh, to cause you to forget and, and begin mind-wandering. This is introspective. This is using your peripheral awareness introspectively. And that's a, that's a direction that you want to go. You, you want to become more powerfully peripherally aware by making sure that you don't lose extrospective awareness up to a certain point. But when you get to the point where you can become more and more introspectively aware, you don't need that extrospective awareness anymore. So that's that's my summary of what I hoped I guided you to be able to do. Does that does that feel like what you can take away from this weekend? Yeah, um, that feels really powerful. The again the relationship between what you're focusing on and the peripheral awareness that, that was a powerful gift for me. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome.
one quick last question. Okay. Um, you just said something about forgetting and subtle awareness. Um, subtle distraction. Subtle distraction. Okay. Subtle subtle distraction. And um, I wanted to know if there's sometimes you get a little bit of an insight and it might last a day or two or three, but then you see your mind slipping back into its old ways. And now it sounds like that could be classed or grouped under some kind of subtle distraction is pulling you back. And so if I could think of what took me out of that as a subtle distraction, I could start looking for antidotes to subtle distraction. Um, it sounds to me like you've mixed two okay. big scale differences here. Something happens over a few days, and yeah. subtle distraction is something that happens at yeah. this little tiny scale of well, it's there, going to capture your attention before the next breath or the one after that. Yeah, and it was that dichotomy that made me think, did I miss something way back? I don't think so. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, we'll do our last meditation, and you know, go ahead and stretch. Uh, if you need to stand up for a moment, go ahead and do that, and then then sit down and get comfortable. So I didn't have to talk after everybody's happy. <laughs> 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 so if, just at the end, if people could brush off the cushions and pull them to the side of the room, appreciate it. Okay. Well, I, I think we'll, we'll save... Uh, this is going to be brief, and we're going to save uh, a, a few minutes at the end to, for you to make any further announcements you need and, and so forth. Okay? All right. So certainly you can do uh, a much longer version of this meditation, but <clears throat> it'll be relatively brief just just to uh, get you introduced to it and uh, maybe allow us to all leave together on a really nice note. Okay, so close your eyes and come into the present. Deep breath, relax. Might even follow the breath for a few breaths just to help settle your mind. Maybe count, maybe count five breaths.
Now say to yourself, may I be free from suffering and call to mind what it feels like to be completely free of every kind of physical and mental suffering. Totally at ease, comfortable. No pain, no stress, no worry. memory, use imagination, whatever you can to create that mental state corresponding to being totally free from suffering. say to yourself, may I be free from ill will and call to mind what it's like to be totally at peace and don't lose that feeling of ease and freedom from suffering. Add to it the feeling of being totally at peace with everything and everyone. No conflict. feeling as clearly as you can what it's like to be totally at ease, body and mind, totally at peace with everything and everyone. Now say to yourself, may I be filled with loving kindness. Do whatever you need to to bring up that feeling of love, the warmth, caring, think of somebody Recall whatever it takes.
And now as you sit here, knowing what it's like to be totally free from suffering, totally free from ill will, filled with love and caring, say to yourself, may I be truly happy and call, call to mind what it's like to be totally contented, totally happy, needing nothing, wanting nothing, Hold this feeling of being completely comfortable and at ease, completely at peace, filled with love, totally happy. Hold this feeling and say to yourself, just as I want these things for myself, so do all beings wish to be free from suffering free from ill will, filled with love and kindness, and completely, truly happy. Now think of somebody that is dear to you, somebody that you care about. <coughs> Picture them wherever you think they might be right now, at this moment. 3.30 on a Sunday afternoon, not standard time. Picture them. Doing what they're doing. See their face. say to them, may you be free from suffering and send them this feeling of ease and comfort. Say to them, may you be free from ill will send them this feeling of being totally at peace with everything and everyone. You might try to see how the expression on their face changes as from nowhere they're suddenly filled with this feeling of being at ease and at peace. And say to them, May you be filled with loving kindness and watch 
as their heart fills with love, they have this warm, contented feeling. And say to them, may you be truly happy and send them the happiness that you feel. Picture this person that you care about. Perhaps they pause at whatever they're doing. Suddenly overwhelmed by these wonderful feelings. that's happened to you at some time. Just suddenly out of nowhere you just felt so happy and so peaceful and so at ease. Perhaps somebody was sending this to you when that happened. And now you're sending this to this person that you care about. Think of someone else you care about. Somebody else that you would like to send this to. See them in your mind's eye. brought them into focus and do the same thing with them. Send them these feelings of comfort, ease, peace, love, happiness. And watch as it blossoms within them. do so, the feeling of love and happiness in your heart may be stronger as well.
Think of all the wonderful, beautiful people in this room with you that you shared this experience with this weekend. Picture us all sitting here together in your mind's eye, just as we actually are. Bring up as strongly as you can in yourself, in your own heart, this feeling of what it's like to be totally free from suffering, totally free from ill will of any kind, filled with love. They are beautiful, wonderful people, and totally happy. And when you feel this strongly in yourself, let it radiate in front of you, behind you, to both sides, to everyone else in this room. And know that they're doing exactly the same thing. if you can open your heart up enough to feel this. To feel all this love and happiness and peace. what we all wish for, to be able to dwell in this place every moment of every day. And you deserve it. It is your deepest birthright. And it is totally accessible to you.
It's something that we achieve together. The more love we give, the more happiness we feel. The more we free ourselves of ill will, the more we are free from suffering. best and shortest path for you to be able to dwell in this place permanently is by joining hands and hearts with those around you. With all of these other good people who suffer the same way that you do. Who would help you if they could and that you can help. All of these good, wonderful, loving people who find themselves drawn into states of ill will, anger, annoyance, irritation. We can help each other to rid ourselves of these afflictions. Indeed, helping each other is the best way to rid ourselves of these afflictions. <coughs> and it goes without saying that it feels better to love than not to love. That it's more fulfilling, more satisfying, life is more meaningful. We are empowered by the love that we give. to transcend our own pain, to be free from suffering, to transcend our own negativity and be free from ill will, to find ourselves as a source of love, loving kindness. These things will, in fact, bring us to the richest possible state of true happiness. Far more than any of the things or experiences 
that we waste our time pursuing in the hopes of happiness. So if you can feel this in your heart and if you can hold this feeling and if you can remember that living this way is what you want and it is completely available to you and it is completely accessible to you. If you can only remember that then you'll make me really happy. So thank you. <clears throat> so that's a practice that you can do in, in the same way that you send these feelings to somebody that you love and care about. You can send them to people that are more casual acquaintances. You can send them to complete strangers. Best of all, a little bit harder, but best of all, well worth it, you can start to picture those people that you have a problem with, that have hurt you or angered you or created difficulties for you and send it to them as well. And as a result of this practice, you will experience all of these things much more easily in whatever circumstances you find yourself in in your life. So, I just thank you very much for allowing me to come and spend this time with you. It's, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. It was it was good. It's good for me. I just hope it was good for you.